This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest, and this was so much fun. His name is Jeffrey Sherman. He is the, uh, I'm going to make him CIO of Double Line and uh, one of the people who came over uh, from Trust Company of the West with Jeff Gunlock to help set up. He actually is Deputy CIO as well as sitting on a number of different executive management committees, um, fixed income financial allocation committee. He runs a number of farm funds as well as co-runs some funds with uh, Jeff Gunlock uh, and is as about as knowledgeable a quant working in the fixed income and equity and commodity space uh, as, as you'll ever uh, want to meet. Um, we really don't go too deep into the weeds on the wonky quant stuff, but it's really a, a fascinating roll up your sleeve sort of conversation. He understands this as well as uh, anybody out in finance. He also hosts his own podcast, which we talk a little bit about. So I found the conversation to be absolutely uh, fascinating and, and intriguing, and I think you will too. So with no further ado, my conversation with Double Lines, other Jeff, Jeffrey Sherman. My special guest today is Jeff Sherman of Double Line Capital, where he serves as Deputy Chief Investment Officer. Uh, the CIO of Double Line is Jeff Gunlock, who coincidentally was the very first broadcast guest on Masters in Business. Um, Jeff Sherman, uh, previous to Double Line, worked as a senior VP at Trust Company of the West, where he was a portfolio manager and quant analyst focused on fixed income and real asset portfolios. He has a BS in applied mathematics from the University of Pacific and a master's degree in financial engineering from Claremont Graduate University. He is also a CFA charter holder as well as a financial podcaster. Jeff Sherman, welcome to Bloomberg. Thanks for having me, Barry. So I have to start with the, the, the education, applied mathematics and financial engineering. Did you know you wanted to go into asset management earlier in your life? Not at all. Not whatsoever. Really? Because yep. that would suggest, oh, here's a path to Wall Street. That's right. And um, what happened is, is um, naturally, I guess I was, I was more inclined towards mathematics along the way. Mm -hmm. I started off actually as a pure mathematician, which is um, a lot of abstract math um just trying to prove concepts a lot of logic really mm -hmm. um and uh, although it was okay to me it just didn't really seem to have a long-term path uh, obviously you can be a professor right i mean talking about ring theory and groups i mean you're already falling asleep no i love that right. stuff. Oh, okay good so um so let's talk deeper about that okay right? um, everybody so, else will fall asleep oh there we but... go so we'll, we'll transition them but um the idea was the applications of of mathematics, it typically it's applied to a lot to physics, right? Mm -hmm. and engineering concepts. And um, I was always kind of curious by statistics. And for some reason, I liked the probability and statistics courses a little more. And so I'd actually changed my major around the middle of my junior year to become an applied mathematician. But unlike the traditional folks, I didn't use the engineering and physics, physics as the application. I actually used it stats and probability. Hmm. So, um, you know, f forgot to really apply for a job as I was going through my forgot. senior year. Forgot. Yeah, well, you know, you kind of get stuck in that uh, academic lifestyle. Uh -huh. And so decided to take the GREs and just try to keep going to, to school. So ended up uh, applying to grad school um, and ended up down in Florida State, down in Tallahassee. And uh, interesting place. Uh, 
didn't really have a lot of application towards statistics and probability as you might think of them. They're they're pretty well honed on a meteorological tilt. Uh-huh. Uh, there's these things called hurricanes that yes. they study, and they're well known for that. So my application got thrown out the window of statistics. Not my application for grad school, uh, but they said <laughs> everybody learns fluid mechanics here. Um, sure. And by the way, here's fifth semester physics. Figure it out. And so um, was doing that along the way. It's kind of late. This was uh, like late '99, early 2000. Realized there are this quant jobs on Wall Street, and there was these programs that actually had a, a financial tilt. And so, similar types of equations, like um, uh, kind of like think in those areas, and uh, started taking simulation and things like that, and uh, ended up uh, transferring back to Claremont, uh, closer to home, back in California, and um, went from there. Financial engineering. Speaking of another mathematician. You were working at the Trust Company of the West with a gentleman named Jeff Gunlock. Correct. Um, what was that like uh, when you were there? Tell us about, about your relationship. Well, um, it was uh, non-existent when I started. Mm-hmm. Um, it worked in a different department. And uh, I remember at the time, this is probably a story a lot of people haven't heard, is uh, Mr. Gunlock would go around and put out puzzles of the month. And they were always some quirky, very deep-in-thought puzzle and it was always the rumor was if you could solve it within the month and turn it into him, you could get a job in his department. Uh, I'm not here to tell you I solved one of those, by the way. Um, but um, it was always uh, curious to me, um, you know, someone that's kind of uh, challenging folks in the workplace. And obviously, as I was, I was working in the risk type of group and kind of the middle office type, analyzing things and just seeing kind of the track record of the team and and how the team had some uh, autonomy. It was always something that I wanted to do. Um, and so um, just kind of started uh, hanging around the folks on the team, trying to uh, you know get my name known or something uh, to try to uh, get in the group. So you never solved one of his puzzles? Negative. And then he leaves? I, I don't know if he actually, for fairness, uh, I'm not sure if anyone ever did. Okay. Uh, I, I, I believe he probably did, or, uh, but I'm not sure if anyone ever did and, and actually got rewarded with that. It could have just been a rumor. That, uh, but that, the puzzles were available. I do know that. It, it's an interesting crowdsourcing. They could be puzzles he couldn't solve and say, let's see if we can find someone else who can uh, uh, again, do I'm the not, heavy lifting. I don't know the answer to that, but um, you know, uh, again, you'd have to ask him next time you see him. I will. So, <laughs> so he leaves to launch Double Line on his own. How did you go about saying, hey, uh, Jeff, I think you need another Jeff in the shop? Right. Well, um, you know, I was on the team at that point in time. I'd been with the team probably at least around five years, four, four to five years at the time. And um, uh, it was a it was a very quick uh, kind of movement. And um, a bunch of people on the desk were talking about, you know, what should we do? And it was a pretty easy decision. I was in my early 30s. Um, and I said, you know, if there's a risk to take, this now's is the time, this, to, now's do the time sure. to do it. One. And, you know, one of the most respected investors in the world why wouldn't you take a risk to join this person on a new venture? And so from that perspective, it's it's almost one of those things people call a no-brainer. Obviously, there's a little bit of you know strife and turmoil in, internally. And um, uh, again, we look back and it, the rest is history. You have a lot of different subject areas you cover. You're deputy CIO. You're on the executive committee. Uh, you're a fund manager. What takes the most of your time. What do you focus on the most? Well, I'll clarify that. I don't run the executive committee. You're on I'm the executive on yeah, yeah, yeah. Did I say you ran yeah, it? It sounded like I it to me. I tend to give people promotions. You know, hey, uh, it's good to be here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that said, um, 
uh, most of my day, you know, is t- is spent between you know facing clients, mm-hmm. you know, uh, portfolio reviews, strategy reviews, um, t- giving outlooks and forecasts of how we're thinking about the markets, um, and obviously, you know, coming up with uh, ideas uh, for implementation. So um, our team works on the asset allocation side. So we're trying to uh, kind of find relative valuation across various sectors of the bond market. Um, additionally, you know, we run our commodity strategy all quantitatively oriented. Uh, my team also helps run the um, uh, equity products that we have on the. Uh, it's kind of a blend of an index with uh, some active fixed income management, and so uh, again, it's it's uh, it's every day's different, uh, but uh, that's what makes it interesting, right? It's um, you don't come in and do the same thing day in day out, um, and it's I always view it as a problem solving exercise, right? Uh, the idea is you're trying to find you know inefficiencies in the market, something that looks attractive, uh, perhaps something that people are missing in the puzzle, and more importantly, trying to poke holes. In what we own today, right? So that's a that's a big part of it. Is that are we missing some risk out there? Obviously, the exogenous ones you can't ever figure out uh, until after the fact. Uh, but it's also are we are we getting lulled into you know in an environment like today, which is complacent, low volatility, not much going on. Um, are we being lulled to sleep as well? And is there something we can do in our portfolios to help kind of offset that, or you know try to think about something that's um, again somewhat exogenous to the process today? Here's a rumor that I just love. Bob Schiller visits Double Line's Los Angeles office and more or less starts pitching CAPE as a way to manage equities more safely. And then somehow this becomes a portfolio. How how, how exaggerated is that? There's some truth in it. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the facts are, this, we don't want fake news, right? We want facts, right? right? Uh, the facts are that uh, Professor Schiller was in her office. And Professor Schiller was talking about his Cape Index family of the products he had partnered with Barclays to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I don't know if he pitched it as a more safe way or that he was actually there truly pitching uh, the product because that's not uh, that's not really Professor Schiller's style. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's very humble. And he likes to talk about ideas, but I don't believe it was a full-blown pitch. Mm-hmm. The bankers with him, well, that's I, a different story. I think perhaps they were pitching. Um, and the question became, okay, this is great. We run a lot of fixed income assets. We have a macro fund. We have a hedge fund that we do things where we could buy these types of products. But so, do you want us to just trade this, or what's the idea here? So from there, what we ended up doing was taking a look at the at the family indices and and thinking about. Is there any merit here? And uh, at first, looking at it, cursory glance, think, you know, just another value product. Mm. You know, so, okay, great, good job, you know. So, so using PE, using 10-year PE? Yeah, yeah using and- like a, a CAPE, uh, CAPE uh, ratio, which is a 10-year uh, price earnings ratio, so because the longer term, you got inflation adjusted, of course. You get a full cycle, get, blah, blah, blah. blah. Well, it- who knows if it's a full cycle anymore? Here well, we are, year eight. You know, will we, uh, you know, could we have a team? off of the off of the low. I, I know, I know your pet you know peeve, peeve about, that, about that, right? The, the bull market starts with the new high. I get it. Um, but that being said, <laughs> uh, I've read, I've, I've read enough and heard enough about it. Um, but um, what we did is started to do some kind of statistical work on it. Look at kind of factor decomposition and things. And I got uh, the story I like to tell is that the first blush through. I just said this is wrong. These these results make no sense. You still have like residual return or alpha in there after this process after adjusting for factors. So in other words, you're saying there's something to this. When you say it's wrong, hey, this is identifying an inefficiency that you hadn't previously considered. However, you don't know me well enough, Barry. The first thing I say is that's got to be wrong. Right? It's got to be wrong. (laughs) Um, And so. 
Um, so we crank through it again. And then the next step after we see it again, go from monthly to daily, start looking at different time periods. I go, now give me the data set. I want to make sure. Let me look through how you're doing it. And yeah, you're absolutely correct. It's that there seems to be something beyond what's in the factors. And there's nothing wrong with factor decomposition or factor portfolios. They're great. But if everybody can deliver to you and it's commoditized, what's my edge, right? right. So uh, what we ended up finding out there is that this, this excess return seemed to exist. And we started going through regime changes and look at different rate environments and different growth and recessionary areas. And what we found is uh, it seems to be relatively robust. And so now the big question becomes, we have this equity index that we've seen that appears to deliver something different in the value space, or even just in core, uh, large cap equity in the US, what do you do with it? Right? Uh, double line historically had been known for being more fixed income oriented. Right. So what do we do with it? And so first thing I think about is why not do it as an overlay? Right? So an overlay means that you can get this exposure through a derivative, like a swap, mm -hmm. um, and you can put that on top of, let's say, a treasury portfolio. That'll replicate the total return. Um, and you could deliver that. But that's no fun. That's just an index business. Um, and if you, you're not familiar, we run about $117 billion of actively managed product. So from the standpoint of what to do with it, why not be a little active with that treasury portfolio? And why not run things beyond treasuries? Why not do what we do well and try to build a diversified, kind of lower risk fixed income product? Don't look like the traditional intermediate term bond funds, but run something that will take a little bit of interest rate risk, take a little bit of credit risk, and use our macro forecasting to blend that together for the right environment. And if you do it right, you can add, let's call it a couple hundred basis points a year over the index. So if you have a good product and, and a process that you believe in uh, from the equity side, which um, really resonated with us. So you buy the four cheapest S&P 500 sectors as measured by the 10-year CAPE? Not precisely. So Not there's precisely. a couple of things different there. One is, uh, instead of using just the CAPE ratio to identify the value, think about, uh, like for instance, tech, uh, the technology sector, and think about utilities. Historically, utilities have always really traded a lower multiple than technology, right? right? And then there's reasons for that vol. Um, you know, highly regulated industries versus high-flying, growthy stocks. Dividend, blah, blah, Divid blah. Yeah, all, all the traditional kind of metrics you would think for that. So, uh, and it, if you just use the CAPE ratio, you would always buy utilities, for instance. Oh, really? Right? Because it would be one of those lower valuation sectors, as on, at least in a historical context. And that would introduce bias to the portfolio. So, to normalize this, or to try to standardize it, what you do is you compare each sector's CAPE ratio to its own historical average. Got it. So the thing about it is normalizing it for its own trading range. Right. Now you have a basis to compare them. And so in other words, you're picking the four least expensive sectors relative to their own history. You're almost there. Getting closer. You're getting closer. Right. And thus far, that's all the information you have. That is correct. Right. Um, so you rank these each month, and you're going to pick the, the bottom five. Uh -huh. And then of those five, which are the cheapest, because it's valuation, you want to avoid value traps, cheap getting cheaper, uh -huh. right? Falling knife, all those you know sexy adages we put to the, uh, to the to that process. What you do is apply momentum. So the, of the five sectors, whichever one's the worst performer, you throw it away. So think about you're sitting in 2014. Energy is extremely cheap on a, on a multiple basis, especially relative to its own history on this CAPE basis. And all of a sudden, oil starts declining middle of the second half of 14. 
And by a couple of months, because of such negative performance in the equities, it kicks it out of the index. So you're left with the other four. Got well, it. this actually would have saved you, if you, if you just only focus on the five, it saves you approximately 600 basis points per wow. annum over the next couple of years. That's huge. Right. So that's just so one of those- So it's K plus a factor. Plus, K plus a factor, but you're not trying to emphasize the factor, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I like to say that we're not factor investors. The factors are a result of the process. And who came up with this really interesting way to use CAPE as a basis of creating an equity-like product? Yeah. Not me, first of all. Okay. I'm not going to take credit for that, uh, even though you want to give me a promotion on uh -huh. it. No, 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 I'm not going to do that. Uh, but this was a joint effort between Professor Schiller and the folks at Barclays. Mm -hmm. So after, I think it was in early 2010, uh, they started getting together working on this uh, project to try to use the CAPE ratio to do something investable. You know, there's all these critics out there about the CAPE ratio. Oh, it doesn't work. Right. Uh, well, it's been above average for a long period of well, time. Well, you can't just use it as a buy or sell decision at face value. That's why people say it doesn't work, but they're really not looking at it correctly. I would agree with that. And I would agree that what what is CAPE? It is a valuation metric. Mm -hmm. What do valuation metrics tell you? They don't tell you when to time the market. They tell you how to think about prospective returns. Right. And that's exactly what the CAPE ratio does. When it's above average, it says you should expect below average returns. Wow. That's not very hard. But people want to say, oh, it's at this level. The market hasn't crashed. It's stupid. Right. right. Um, but if you look at any valuation metric today, they are in, on, and apply it to the US equity market, at least as many as I'm aware of, they all say the market is overvalued. But it doesn't say it's going to crash. But for some reason, people get uh, fascinated by this CAPE ratio and just want to attack it. And again, it does have um, some good credibility of, of, of talking about forward-looking returns. In fact, it has one of the highest R-squareds of the metrics out there. Uh, however, it doesn't say when to get out of the market. I'm fond of reminding people that stocks were cheap in the 70s, and they did poorly, and they were expensive in the 90s, and they did really well. Right. Well, um, and you know, the level we see on the CAPE ratio at the U.S. equity market, a large cap, um, <clears throat> has had, this is the third time we've been here. And both times, once it's hit this level, at some point, it collapsed. You, you had um, the Great Depression, uh, which you lost about 80%. You know, no eh, big deal. Yeah, whatever. What's eighty percent I mean, between friends? Yeah, especially if you compound it out. Right. It doesn't take doesn't take much, but five hundred percent to get back right. to to break even. That is, and then get in your bull market, as you like to say, right? Right. Um, but then the second time uh, was in the technology kind of boom, and it went up like another 80 percent before it ultimately did crash. Right. Putting this all together, uh, there's nothing that says you know we have two data points, not very robust statistically, right. not right? a good set, right? But um, it does you know it does strike some fear. But um, you know, if you want to get bullish, I mean, just think of the Japanese stocks in the late '80s. I mean, they traded with a high 90 right. Kate multiple. Crazy. So, I mean, look, we got a couple hundred percent to run <laughs> without even earnings growing. If you believe in the Japanese model, let's talk a little bit about the two Jeffs, which is how you and the other Jeff, Jeff Gunlock, is known. Uh, he has a pretty wild origin story. He's a board drummer in a hair band watching the television show Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous when he decides he's tired of being broke and takes a phone book and just literally starts reaching out to finance companies, more or less. I think he looked up the word investment banker, I think. That's and, right. And it wasn't right. in the yellow pages. It was not in the yellow yet. pages. Um, what was your origin story like? Uh, nothing dramatic like that. Um, <clears throat> after I was in grad school, and obviously one of the things you have to do is an internship, 
yeah, to get some hands-on experience. And I did my internship at a place called Trust Company in the West. Ah. Uh, and so as an intern there, um, I accepted a full-time position while I finished up um, the last uh, piece of uh, my graduate work. So <clears throat> unfortunately, nothing really sexy like using the phone book at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the if you could, if you want to get nostalgic, the way I got the internship, um, I actually had accepted an internship back at Florida Power and Light mm-hmm. uh, down in West Palm Beach. I knew some people there from my Florida State days. And so looking for an internship, I tried some local companies and didn't get any calls back. And I drove my Ford Ranger pickup, you know, uh, the two-seater, not the extended cab. Right. And you can see I'm, you know, I'm about 6'3". Uh, not the most comfortable ride cross-country. Sure. Um, in that four-cylinder beast that I had there. And um, drove to uh, West Palm Beach. To, from California. From California, yeah. I was, cause so like a month, week driving cross-country. Uh, four days. Okay. Yeah, four days. I mean, look, you, there's not a lot of money to go around on internships. You, you get there as soon as you can. Those right. Mo- those motels are expensive across the country <laughs> at like 30 bucks a night. Uh, so anyway, I get there. And uh, why I say it's a little nostalgic is I get a call from my roommate back in L.A. who says, hey, it's this guy from TCW who left you a voicemail, you know, on the uh, answering machine, right? This isn't cell phone days. Um, and so um, they're talking about interviewing you for an internship. So I said, great, I'll call them. So I ended up actually calling them, uh, <clears throat> did the interview. And at the end of it, I was like, you know, kind of what's your time frame? Uh, a couple of weeks or something like that. I said, I started I started a job in like four days, um, but if you guys can offer me the internship, I'll come back. So I had to meet with someone else, and um, fortunately they did, and uh, I made the trek back three days this time, because uh, uh, again, no funds are coming in too, so those were like 14, 15-hour days, but uh, that's how I came back to start my internship. That's a pretty good origin story. That one, that's not terrible. That's, right. that's an interesting uh, cross-country and back in a week, essentially. Yeah, I mean, essentially like 5,000 miles over the course of a week, week and a half. Um, not the most pleasant experience. Uh, there was a lot of uh, pit stops along the way. I think I was doing, you know, because of my legs aching, no more than like 90 minutes. I was getting getting you know, up, stretching. getting a quarter tank of gas each time just to do something. Wow. Um, that's, uh, you know, you got to have a good playlist on your CDs. So the other Jeff, which is what people used to call you, the, yeah. the primary Jeff is Gunlock. What's it? Like working with a guy who is a force of nature like him. Uh, it's what I know. You know, um, this this is the team I've worked with the majority of my career. I've been around this team, you know, in my entire formidable years of, of an inv- as being an investor. And so, you know, he's human like anybody else. Um, you know, we, we collaborate. We all work together. Um, he fosters a very great environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about you know the amount of talent we have uh, surrounding uh, from our emerging markets team, our loan team, our high yield folks, our mortgage people, you know ABS. We, I mean, we we span the entire universe, and he provides folks with a lot of autonomy. You know, uh, foster growth, um, constructive criticism when necessary. But I think one thing that um, should be noted is he he is very a very good listener. You know, if there's ideas, there's different ways to do something, he's always open to them. But if they're wrong, he'll tell you, you know. So it, it's it's a fair relationship. And I think that's why you see very uh, limited turnover in the investment staff is it's it's a good environment. What do you think when he goes on TV and says, sell everything? <laughs> how, how do you guys respond to that? Do well, clients usually, call or what happens? Well, my team's office, uh, we don't sit on the trading desk with everybody else. We're kind of removed. Uh, I kind of like that little close-knit with my team. But our team is right outside the media room. So... 
uh, we're going, that's happening right there right now. Now, sell everything. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not going to say that he's always hyperbolic, but I think he's trying to get a point across. And what he's saying is that at the time, this was right around Brexit, mm-hmm. where everyone is telling you, this is right prior to Brexit, that disinflation's taking over, GDP is collapsing, we're going to be stuck in this highly levered economy with no growth. I mean, it, it was this very negative time. And the idea was that we can't break really new lows on the 10-year. These markets aren't responding in a way that's consistent with the message. And the sell everything is that if you feel that you have too much risk on and you're nervous by the phrase sell everything, Barry, what that means is you probably own too much risk. And that was really the message behind it. Um, Again, clients don't take it as uh, well as that. They're like, should I just sell everything? (laughs) Um, But it's like you'd tell people when you have a great market going on, like we have in the equity market, People get extremely nervous, and they want to sell everything. Sell a piece, monetize something, um, but you got to be able to get back in the game too. So the sell everything mantra, I think um, I'm not going to call it hyperbolic, but it's meant to be there to try to drive a message home. Is that look, there's a lot of risk out there you're not seeing. Reduce your risk levels, and anytime you sell something, you have to have a line in the sands to get back in. I assume that's exactly right. And we were really focused on the bond market, and it, the thing wasn't just sell everything. You know, it, it was really li- related to an art piece, too, where it was uh, sell the house, sell the wife, sell the kids. And so uh, I think he used that, and then he said, just sell everything. Uh, and I think he That's used funny. it on a webcast uh, a few few days earlier. And, you know, we, we heard him saying it around the office, didn't think it'd really go on TV <laughs> and say it, but he did. Um, and, you know, look, he was right at the time. I mean, there was a lot of risk brewing, specifically in the bond market. And yield shot up pretty quickly post-Brexit. And so um, there was the entry point to, you know, uh, we weren't really doing a lot of trade at that time. We just hated the price levels. And so it was time to start putting things back to work. So it's being patient, too, uh, making sure that you don't stray. Don't let the central bankers force you in, into the box into positions you're not comfortable with. Um, don't don't have the FOMO, the fear of missing out with everybody else. And, you know, make sure you're, you're investing for your philosophy and what you're trying to achieve. And that's really what it is, is that people have gotten accustomed to taking a lot of risk. Um, that's really not in their normal zones, I would say. Let's talk a little bit about stocks and bonds and commodities, which is telling us uh, where we are in the financial cycle now. Well, I think each of those three sectors of the market, those asset classes, um, have a different time perspective. Um, and I think of the bond market as being more contemporaneous. Uh, it's digesting macro data as it comes through. It tells us uh, essentially where we are currently. Mm-hmm. Uh, the equity market, obviously, the forward discounting mechanism. You think about uh, when we're in the midst of a recession, uh, equity prices tend to be rising somewhat um, when you're in the middle to the back end of the recession as it's thinking about the prospects looking forward. Uh, and then I, I would call commodities the more of the laggard. They actually tell you what has happened. Uh, and the reason for that commodities being on that kind of backward-looking thing is because you're talking about already have consuming, uh, already have consumed uh, the commodity itself, and so you you kind of see this forward-looking event. The supply and demand imbalance gets out of whack, and so um, they all tell you different things, except. Uh, or they have different time horizons, uh, except right now you're getting a little contradictory evidence between um, these markets. And in fact, with the commodity story, what you've seen is it's been based on a lot of growth, uh, specifically industrial metals, very, very strong this year. So let Um, me push back on you. The immediate response on commodities I hear from traders all the time, oh, it's a weak dollar story. Well, you know, the dollar has been weak. But if eight percent is going to spike, you know, industrial metals prices thirty percent, 
uh, I think there's a little disconnect there. Yes. Um, so the strength of the dollar is not going to pull. If we, we rallied back to you know uh, early 2017 levels, I don't think it's going to pull down um, you know industrial metal prices, copper, nickel specifically, um, in, in that manner to, to reset those prices. So um, it's a good story, um, but we'll keep it as a narrative that's not necessarily uh, factually correct. What about the flattening yield curve? I keep hearing people say, you know, this yield curve is flattening, and that suggests a recession is not that far off. That's right. But they, when they pull you the chart out, they start either in 2017 <laughs> uh, or they go back to um, really December of 13 at the end of the taper tantrum. Right. Remember the taper tantrum, although not December, if you go back to the peak, what the 10-year kind of closed at 302, and what were twos at that time, like 30 basis points, right? I mean, massively steep curve. Um, but if you actually pull the data set back, respect history, right. um, what you'd see is the average experience is in you know kind of the high 90 basis points, like 96, 97 basis points. Average, kind of using monthly data, the shape Spread of the between two and ten. Twos and tens, yeah. Uh, it's actually a differential between ten and the two, but we call it twos tens. Um, but today, yeah, you're sitting in the mid seventies, um, but that's not a recession indicator. In fact, uh, we have uh, some charts we use in a lot of our webcasts um, that we show that this is endemic of a Fed tightening cycle. Mm -hmm. And so when the Fed tightens, the yield curve tends to flatten. Um, where people get fearful is that if the yield curve inverts. At the end of that. Right. And so I hear, uh, I read a lot about, oh, this is portending recession, recession, but it's barely below average. Right. To see a little bit of this flattening could take place. But what about the growth story, Barry? What about the idea that you know we're growing on a nominal basis in the four handles, right? I mean, real GDP is about 2.3% mm -hmm. on a year-over-year -year basis. We've been growing in the low twos since the financial crisis. Um, and you have this inflation print. And if commodities actually put you on the verge of getting a little more inflation in the system, uh, perhaps the yield curve actually does steepen a little bit. So we'll have to see kind of on the inflation side, because uh, the back end of the curve is going to be priced closer to nominal GDP. And we haven't even talked about the Fed's unwinding of their balance sheet. So let's talk a little bit about the Fed unwinding their balance sheet. I keep, by the way, every time I reference they said, I hear trading say, you, you know the rumors that bounce around desks. Mm -hmm. One of the things we hear is, hey, you know, the Fed is behind the curve. They should have tightened much further already. What What are your thoughts on that? Well, if you want a recession, yes, they should have, they should have tightened sooner. Um, but the behind the curve is garbage. I mean, the fact that we can't print a two-handle inflation consistently, the fact that we can't print a two-handle inflation print consistently, it really just destroys that thesis. Mm -hmm. Yes, unemployment is low, but there's no wage inflation behind it. Um, people use the hurricane spike at the you know the 2.9 percent average hourly growth a couple months back, the month post hurricane. Uh, uh, the hurricanes, that it, it was, oh my gosh, here it comes, here it comes. It was revised down a little bit. The next print's 2.5. We're back in the, in the middle of the range. And so the idea that the Fed's behind the curve, I think, once again, it's just a myth. Uh, the Fed has pushed this year. I mean, they've, they've raised rates twice. They're on their path to third, their third hike. And, you know, what you've seen, though, is because it's put pressure on the front of the curve, which, you know, the Fed funds ties into LIBOR, Prime, all those rates. What you've actually done is constrict some parts of the consumer when they talk about credit cards, loans that are tied on the front end of the curve. Almost everything outside of housing is tied to LIBOR, right? Or some derivative of via prime rate. So you've actually seen some constriction in consumer spending. Um, so it's a, it's a little bit strange. The bond market, you know, if you talk about term financing through corporate America, yields are lower today than they were at the beginning of the year, but the consumer is paying, you know, 50 plus basis points higher. So for a consumer-driven economy, they have to be very careful 
if it's 70 percent of gdp is coming from the consumer we've got to be careful of, of like tightening that spigot too quickly and so i don't buy the idea that the fed's behind the curve in fact they're doing a double dose of tightening for the fact that they're going to raise rates they're in the process of a hiking mm -hmm. regime that's undeniable sure and they're reducing their balance sheet they've already started uh last month um, in October, they started taking off $10 billion a month out of the balance sheet by lack of reinvestment. Let, but stop there, because uh, I've been discussing this with people, and you get that thousand-yard stare when it starts. Explain what it means for them not to roll over uh, paper they have, how their balance sheet shrinks by them doing nothing. Right. <clears throat> so they have uh, there's as a maturity wall. Each month, there's securities that mature. Prior to October of 17, they reinvested those proceeds at some point along the curve, both through treasuries and agency mortgages, government guaranteed mortgages. So by them not reinvesting the securities, that means those securities, instead of being held in what I would call a price taker hands mm -hmm. that the Fed buys blindly, does not care what the yield is, right? right? It now gets put out in the float of the market. So from an equity perspective, if we draw that parallel, imagine insiders putting securities out in the marketplace. So those bonds need to be digested by price discrimination uh, or people who are price discriminatory when it comes to the price and yield of those securities. As opposed to the Fed that buys at any price. Blindly. So you can think the ECB, 60 billion euros is still a month um, that they're doing until the end of the year. So by the Fed putting these securities out in supply in the market, it needs to be digested by investors. And so that means there's a net supply of new bonds in the marketplace without <clears throat> even discussing the budget, uh, discussing the shortfalls there. The the uh, the deficit neutral $1.5 trillion that the, the new tax plan is going to cost over 10 years. So at the margin, it's not much on their balance sheet. It's only $10 billion. You know, some firms get that in a month in terms of bond flow. Right. So, but the plan is to or go a day if you're or, Vanguard. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> that, that, that's that's the elephant in the room, right? But what we're saying about the Fed is don't take that money and roll it into a new bond, which means that bond is now those, um, what would have been purchased and put back on the Fed balance sheet is now in the out in the marketplace. It's out in the market one, so the market has to digest it. But don't forget. It goes from $10 billion a month, and in January, it's on schedule to go to $20 billion a month. Right. And then in April, $30 billion a month. And then July, $40 billion, and then October, $50 billion. So this isn't them selling. This is simply them not renewing, not rolling over uh, bonds that mature in order to shrink their balance sheet. That's correct. And so that's as stated today. Remember, the game plan can change. Right. Um, so what, what that means is is that these securities were set to mature anyway. And if you actually look at the Fed's balance sheet and the maturity schedule, it, it always is above this threshold. So they will be, barring any changes in the plan, um, putting these securities out in the marketplace effectively. However, they do have a little thing in there that say, up to... Mm -hmm. It doesn't say exactly, and there are a few months, which you, I, I, don't, I can't recall off the top of my head if there's one month in 18 or if it starts in 19 where there's not enough to actually dump the $50 billion a month. Right. So we'll have to see how that plays out. But let's talk about what happens if the Fed continues to press rates because they're behind the curve. And we're putting these these more more of these bonds in the marketplace. Um, we just feel that it has to be at the margin negative for yields, meaning they should go up, right? Um, because there's more float in the marketplace. And yet, bond yields have not really ticked up all that much. How do you explain that up to this point, late in 2017? Right. I think um, I'm gonna call it Super Mario, you know, um, <laughs> okay. and that's I'm referring to the uh, ECB. ECB president, <laughs> and. Um, 
You know, Draghi has he's really got himself a conundrum. Um, he's got nominal GDP similar to ours, right? He's got German boons, the ten-year trading sub forty basis points. You know, where we're sitting closer to two hundred and forty basis points. Um, so, and he's got overnight lending rates negative 40 basis points. Um, you know, we're talking today at like one and three eighths here in the U.S. Um, so what is the disconnect between their economy, which is growing? They have margins expanding. You know, they never had this recession um, and they're continuing to grow similar rates. Why are their yields so compressed? Why Wait, does when he you need- say they never had this recession? They had a bad couple of years and they certainly suffered during the Great, great Recession. Sure. But also, we did too, really, in profitability in the U.S. It was highly correlated to energy, right? Mm-hmm. It infected the entire world. But I mean, we had a profit recession here in the U.S., which I'm defining as declining corporate profits consecutively. So I, I uh, it was approximately five quarters. We staved that off, right? And really, they did too, right? They never had the true economic recession uh, that's typically associated with that. And it's, it's one of the first times in history you've actually seen, even in the U.S., go through the profit recession, not leading to a true economic recession. Hmm. So. When you when you actually look at kind of the spreads and everything, I, I do believe uh, if you look at yields, there's been such correlation in global bond yields uh, that the reason you have some of this um, kind of I won't call it a ceiling, but the fact that you have yields in the U.S. a little too low relative to historical standards as measured by GDP, um, I think a lot of it stems from the fact that you had this compression because they continue to buy bonds. It's not just that they won't hike rates, negative 40 basis points on overnight lending. But they also are buying 60 billion euros. So Draghi cuts 30 billion of that out in January. That's 30 less that 30 billion euros less he's buying, and the Fed's dumping more into the, the market. So we could see an increase in rates in 2018. Yeah, and that's that's kind of our stance at this point is that yields should push higher from these levels. And historically, long bonds and and you know trade around nominal GDP. So that says you know maybe they're about 100 basis points uh, too rich today, and a long bond being 30. We have been speaking with Jeff Sherman. He is the deputy CIO at Double Line Capital. If you enjoy this conversation, we love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. You can check out my daily column on bloombergview.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. Be sure and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape rolling and continue discussing all things Uh, bonds, commodities, and equities, you can find those podcast extras wherever finer podcasts are sold, Apple iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jeff, for doing this. I, I had so much fun on your podcast uh, earlier this year, and I knew I've wanted to have you here for a while. Um, let's talk about a few things we didn't get to, some questions I wanted to ask you um, during the regular broadcast portion, and then we'll jump into some uh, more fun stuff. Uh, so you mentioned Super Mario. We were talking about the Fed. Uh, we left out the third player in central bank. Kurodasan. Yes. What What do you think about uh, Abenomics and, and what's going in, on in Japan? And can you ever recall a period where the U.S., Japan, and Europe were so out of phase with their recoveries and or economic stimuli? 
Yeah, that, that's a lot to digest there. So um, essentially, I, I don't know how the BOJ gets out of their policy. I mean, they, they own so many equities. I mean, the the data we see is like sixty percent of the equity market, roughly the same as their ETF market. Like you could let you could let bonds just mature and roll off. You can't do that with equities, right? And the other thing is, is that they're supposedly targeting a rate. The rate isn't the rate they're targeting. I mean, it's it's flat out trying to manipulate the curve. Um, but you know, the thing is, is that they believe it's working. Abe got reelected, got the majority, um, which the economy wasn't isn't bad. The economy isn't bad, and. You know they think they're going to get their inflation, so we'll have to see. Um, but I think they're the ones that are on cruise control. They're not going to peel this back until they get their desired effect. How, how do we explain that of all the major economies, they're the ones that's the most problematic in terms of their balance sheets, their demographics, their heavily uh, export-dependent economy, and yet? What is the the ten year in Japan now? It's roughly. It's usually in the single digit basis it, points. It, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah. So so how do we explain that? Are is Japan more credit worthy than Germany or the U.S. or is something else going on? I think it's something else going on too. I mean, look, it's it's the home of the carry trade. It has been for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns into the flight to quality asset when there's crisis because as Japanese based investors. They have to invest overseas to get any semblance of a return, mm-hmm. right? And so, what you find is, in when things go bad, they repatriate the money back home, get the strength in the yen. Um, so, uh, I think the dynamics have changed over time. But I think what we should learn from it is a precursor of things to come in a developed world. And Europe is on that track. The U.S. is on that track. Um, when you look at birth rates, uh, we're barely at replacement rates here in the U.S. We're way ahead of Japan, though. I mean, the U.S. may be the best birth rate of industrialized right. democracies. That's why, say, that's why I say Europe is going to have the problem next. For sure. Right? And there's one way to cure the birth rate. Have kids. One. Okay. Um, or well, but immigration. How do you, immigration I, is another thing that right. you need workers. It's not necessarily you know having children because that takes a while. If we start tonight, Barry, it's going to take right. you know eighteen twenty years to get that thing going. So uh, immigration is a, is a good stopgap too for that time. But you look at things like Saudi Arabia. I mean, their workforce in prime working age is like eighty percent of their area uh, is in prime working age. So I think what you see in the Japan, it goes to Europe next. Um, and then the U.S., without changing its ways, ultimately would go that direction. But you're talking decades, many decades uh, down the road. Uh, but again, we, we shouldn't just turn a blind eye to what's going on in Japan. And that's what happens when you have a closed-off immigration system right. and you don't have the birth rates. And again, the, the demography is horrible. You know, um, but and yet they continue just puttering along. It's 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 good, to forced- contro- it's good to control your own printing press. Well, to say to say the least, I have to push back against something you said, or or I may have misheard previously. You had said this is the only profit recession we've seen where there wasn't a, a subsequent economic recession. I believe that to be true, but is that you the can point U.S. To or is that U.S. Europe? U.S. I was talking. So about. U.S. unemployment doubled from five to ten percent. GDP dropped to zero. How is that not 
a. I'm talking. I'm talking recently. Oh, oh recently. in recent quarters. Oh, so, so you're not referring scare- to the financial not crisis ever? No. Oh, okay. Come on, Barry. All right. No, I misunderstood. No, I, I've been around at least that long. So you use right. 2016, so I'm using 2015. Four, no, I'm using 14 and 15. Right. So that's really when the. So you had a drop in reset. Uh, drop. You had a drop in profits throughout most of 15, early 16. Then you started to see the recovery. So those are the the five quarters I'm referring to. Got it. Oh, so yeah. that. Uh, so you can fact check it later too. But some I, I, a number yeah. of. I think it was. Um, I'm trying to remember who uh, Ecri was forecasting that as a recession, right. and it never showed it up. It never as materialized. And if you look at the conference board leading indicator, which is a great indicator of the yep. recession, what you had in 15 is we got close when yeah. it rolled over early 16. We got almost to zero on that, and the negative <clears throat> area tends to be recessionary. Not always, but again, it's one point, and that rebound there. So that indicator still looks pretty good. That um that is the Reinhardt and Rogoff. Um, explanation is following financial crises, you get a very subpar GDP, very subpar employment and wage gains, and it looks like you're perennially on the verge of a recession, but you're just slowly recovering, and and there is no credit available to to push you away from that sub-1% GDP. Very little credit, I should say. Then there's two things that I kind of uh, glean from that. Um, One is, is that um, you you also have this high debt burden, right? right? And that's the other part of the Reinhardt Rogoff study. Sure, is that essentially when you hit certain debt to GDP ratios, you can just never recover. So, and the second uh, point I was trying to make too is that ultimately, or historically, I should say, when you had a nominal GDP sub five in right. the U.S., that led to a recession, and we've been. Perennially sub, there, sub sub five percent nominal, not real. Okay, okay, yeah. Sorry, I, I wasn't clear there. So included inflation, um, but that has to be tossed out. We've we've been sub five for a long time, right, period of time. Years. So I think it's consistent with the Reinhard Rogoff study as well. And then the other thing I wanted to ask you about that I didn't get to while we were doing the broadcast portion was on the Schiller Kate portfolio. There are a handful of questions. Um, first, this model. You guys at Double Line are now running a billion dollars or so. Is that right? Uh, it's a little more than that. It's about six billion today. Six billion. Wow. Yeah. So, and who is the fund manager of that? Uh, that's myself and that Jeffrey Gunlock. That would be Gunlock. you and that Jeff. All right. So, yeah. the two Jeffs are running this as a six billion dollar portfolio. You have uh, the original version was U.S. I understand there's a European version of yes, this. Yes, that's correct. Um, so. The same, same basic model. Same model. Instead of using the S and P 500 decomposing its sectors, take the MSCI Europe mm-hmm. and decompose it into its sectors. Uh, so, you, if you're taking MSCI, MSCI Europe, could you do the same thing for MSCI Emerging Markets or Asia or what have you? You are correct, and there are other versions. There is um, there's a Japanese version. We do not have a product on that today. Mm-hmm. Um, there is the Asia X Japan uh, version as well. Um, and most people, the first question is, what about emerging markets? Right. And so remember, we're using earnings data so, right, to build a CAPE, CAPE ratio. <laughs> so how do you think earnings 10 years ago looked in the emerging market? Well, what's the credibility of right. it? And so although we've tried to gravitate to these international standards, um, the, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical of the data set. Uh, and the um, actually how good the data is. So um, perhaps at some time someone will be able to create a standard methodology uh, for that. Uh, but again, it, I think it's too early to apply this in in its form as it exists today. So that's a really interesting product that that you helped to to create based on Bob Schiller's work. What is the process like for thinking about developing and rolling out? New models, new funds, new what have you. 
Yeah, I have a whiteboard mm-hmm. in the office. Um, you know, uh, typically, you know, when people have ideas, our team looks at it. Uh-huh. You know, um, you know, you know, what's the targeted market? What's our edge? How do we? What, what's what differentiates us from other things? And so, um, although you know, we have probably seventeen strategies that we offer out to the public today. Um, when you look across them, they are different. But they're all consistent. They're macro consistent. They're the same thinkers. They're the same portfolio managers. And right. it's, it's different risk profiles. And so what I like to say is that it answers the question I get whenever I give a talk in front of an audience. You know, if you had $100, Barry, how would you allocate it across your funds? And so instead of That's doing that- That's a good that, question. It is a great question. And so my response now is, tell me your risk profile. What, what kind of drawdown do you like? What's your objective here? And we can give you probably a strategy that's a one-stop shop for it, mm-hmm. right? And so um, the idea is that if we find new things, you know, we're happy to get involved with them. Um, but again, we don't want to just saturate the market with products that we don't think has some different edge than something that currently exists. And so you know, we've rolled out ETFs over the years. Um, where we sub-advise them, um, different channels. We built a USIC complex starting last year. Uh, starting to take, uh, it's trying to take hold of the European markets. And so, um, right now we're looking at kind of you know that horizontal type of distribution. We're trying to bring our services to more people, right? And, and not uh, not necessarily got to have new products to do that. So the the biggest theme in in the world of investing for the past I don't know year decade fill in the blank has been the shift towards passive investing on the equity side versus active stock picking. But I think a lot of people make the assumption that the same is true on the bond side. And from what most of the academic data shows is that active investing on bonds actually generates alpha. Tell us about um, why active on bonds is so much more effective than active on equities. Um, I mean, small little question, tiny topic. Yeah, small Should take topic. Take you thirty seconds. Yeah, um, how much time do you have for the rest of the day? <laughs> I think uh, what's what's amazing about it is the bond has indices. First of all, historically have been kind of poorly constructed, mm-hmm. and what they did is they over inclusive, regardless oh, of quality, regardless. It's not of, necessarily overly inclusive. Um, what I would argue is the the. It's the thesis behind it. The fact that they use market value of debt to index it. So the more you borrow, the larger position you are in the index. So you're trying to bring that market capitalization idea from the equity market and turn it into market value in fixed income. And so it doesn't make sense. So Barry, as you borrow more money from me, I you know we sh- more investors should give you more money. And put a higher allocation because you're more creditworthy. No, you're absolutely less creditworthy. So it's actually inherently incorrect the way that the ind- the traditional indices have looked at that. And obviously, there's other people trying to build new new models behind that. Uh, but I think if you look across the universe, there's a lot of S and P data that shows uh, active fixed ma- income management tends to outperform the indices over very long periods of time. Um, it just is such a different set of data. Versus equities, well, look at the it's ETF. incomparable. Well, look at the ETF world, the passive ETFs, um, not the active ones, but the passive ones relative to active managed either ETFs or funds. It's the same thing is, is, is true there. I'm not saying that people are picking off the ETF investors, but they're, you know what they're going to buy. When the big new issue comes out, you don't want to participate in it because you know they're going to gobble it down and they're price takers once again, just right. like the Fed. As opposed to price right. makers. And so um, it's, you can move the bond price a lot more than you can probably the equity prices. That said, uh, this, this fervor for indexation on the equity side, 
there's got to be a limit to it. Obviously, the whole world can't be in. Well, we're we're at thirty five percent in the U.S. And if you listen to um, Bill McNabb or Tim Buckley, the incoming CEO, they point out that globally it's five percent. Right. That's fair. So so th- wherever that limit is, we're still fairly early days here. Agreed. But I also I also think back to how the product's sold. The product isn't sold buy and hold cheap. A lot of people. I know you profess that your team. Uh, people say that, but a lot of people are saying active management doesn't work. So what the what the corollary is? They're telling people that indexing outperforms active management. So what happens when it doesn't? Are the That's people still going to stay there? One. Secondly, we we take this idea that if you index, you're going to be buy and hold. You're going to be. Now your job as an advisor is to help people stay invested. But let's be honest, a market correction, a legit 20% kind of drawdown, people are going to run for the hills, too. Yes, but here's the pushback. Okay. So first, I don't disagree with anything you're saying, except the way it's best phrased is, hey, active equity stock picking and or market timing can beat indexing. However, it's expensive and net of fees and costs, there's a, there's a bogey to overcome. And what makes you think that you're going to find... Bill Miller in right. 1989, not Bill Miller in 07. So those are the challenges, right? But I think that's that's I think that's also that's the a thing. different argument. It though. is, and and the thing about it is, maybe what it is is maybe there's too many poor managers. Maybe there's too many people hugging the index itself. That's Bill Miller's. That's Bill exactly Miller actually his argument. comes out and says, and I think that's hey, true. why are you paying up for closet index? Right, and, and I think those people should be exposed. <clears throat> and and they, they, slowly, they slowly are. You know what? People got upset about the DOL rule. But maybe we have too many bad advisors, too, that are no, flipping things and doing no this doubt. stuff. No right. doubt. No doubt. So we're cleaning, these all things, we're cleaning all these things up. And if you're going to get an index product, pay index fees. I'm with right. you there. But- I do think there are good stock pickers. I'm probably not one of them uh, at this stage of the game, but there are people that y- you should reward there, and the activists, and you know, people have targeted niches. Th- those those people will always be able to generate alpha. It's just you have to identify them. Yes, in advance, right? In advance, not when they're after small the fact, size, not when they have not a fifty-five billion big, dollar right? hedge fund. <laughs> you know that you have to pay four and forty for to get in, right? But and they won't even take you, and they won't take you. They'll right. close down and only run their own money, right? Uh, but not to, not to mention any names. I don't know anyone that's done that. You know, so maybe uh, one, maybe one. Yeah, company. yeah, but um, yeah. So they, so let's talk about podcasting a little bit. We're active, passive. We've beaten the okay. death over the years everywhere. So. You, by the way, for those of you listening, Jeff has a podcast which is misnamed The Sherman Show. I have internally renamed it Sherman Says. Okay, great. Which is what it should be called. It and when you do, when you when you are privileged to be invited on Jeff's podcast, they he has this word association, and that segment is called Sherman Says. And your job in word association is to come up. With a word, one word response, which I actually think I was pretty, pretty true to. Um, but yeah, you you were one of the successful people in only using one word. But when I've listened to other people's answers, they're like paragraph long. How is this word association if you're giving me a a, a storyline on it? So I did not want to do word association with you because okay. that's your thing. Okay. But I did something. I'm going to name drop here. At at a recent conference, I did something with Cliff Asness, okay. who is always amusing and fascinating and and uh, very sharp tongued and witty. Right. Yes, we, yes, uh, not yeah. only a, not only a math guy, but like a really funny. Um, 
uh, right side of the brain as well. And, and uh, his work is phenomenal. Like, abso- I, I, absolutely. I'm definitely a big fan. So so uh, for for a, a live q and I did with him, I came up with a lightning round, which was, you can answer these long or short. You could do one word, you could do a sentence, but the idea is whatever comes into your head, quick answer. All right. All right. You ready? For the, for the lightning round with Jeff Sherman, uh, two year or ten? For what? For anything. Um, two's higher, ten's higher, spread relatively similar. Star Trek or Star Wars? Star Wars. Europe or emerging markets? Emerging markets still. Do- dollar will continue some weakness, and I think that's very supportive. L.A. Lakers, Golden State Warriors. I'm a Lakers fan. All right. Yeah. I just wanted to give you an opportunity to... I, I like everything else, Bay Area. I'm a San Francisco Giants, San Francisco Niners, but I grew up watching the Lake Show, you know, with the I, Magic and so. And so you and me both. I Look, I do root for Golden State in the playoffs because the Lakers can't ever make it anymore. Um, so, again, maybe one day with Lonzo we can uh, get it back together. Smart beta or factor investing? Factor investing. I knew you were going to go that way. Taco or burrito? Taco. I'm a big taco fan, yes. Bill Miller or Peter Lynch? Peter Lynch. That's interesting. I'm surprised you said that. Tesla P100, BMW i8. I'm a Beamer guy. Okay. I see you're in California, so I didn't know which way you're going to go. Yeah, yeah. I I, I don't feel it's still that much of pollution in there. (laughs) Tax reform or infrastructure spending? Infrastructure spending. If you're going to do 1.5 trillion dollars, at least let's put it to work. Let's let's get some paved roads and right. some reliable. If you're going to drive that I8 or that Tesla, you right. don't want to bounce down the Let street. Let me tell you, they both have tight suspensions. Yeah. What is your favorite pet peeve? When uh, people just state things as facts with no evidence behind them, and so I know you do the evidence-based investing conference, and I'm a big fan of that. We hear so many rumors. We talked about the flattening the yield curve, right. all these things today, and people just say it with blatant fact, with um, a lot of like, confidence too. It's not it, that's why it's called a con game, right? It's a confidence <laughs> game. You got to come across uh, sharp. So, um, you know, again, sometimes we misstate facts, uh, but I'm, I'm I'm always willing to uh, retract the statement if that's indeed the case. But at least if you're gonna, you know, spread something around, uh, let's try to make it somewhat factual. And and our our last lightning round, um, give us words to live by or your favorite motto. It's tough to pull that out. Wow, of Wow, that I mean, you, you should at least prep me on that one. I I you will prep. I prep yeah. you on the next section. Yeah. This one yeah. I wanted. I wanted this to be a surprise. Yeah, as as you do. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, simply as honesty is the best policy. We're in the business of being fiduciaries and. When you we see these things where people are, you know, conning clients and things, it makes our jobs harder. We're trying to come out factual. We're trying to give things. So, you know, uh, maybe it's the golden rule: like do unto others as you there want you go. to you. Right? That, that's so, a winner. It, it sounds kind of uh, corny, but um, it's a I compliance-friendly think, answer to yeah, say the least. That's right. So uh, there we go. Let's jump to our longer-form favorite questions that we ask all of our guests. Tell us the most important thing that people don't know about your background. Most important thing about the background, um, you know, that I had no intention of getting this business. You know, I mean, I, I was just a lost, um, you know, teenager into a young adult and just looking for something to do. And um, Gra- you know, and that was grad school. That was gra- grad school. I found it. And actually at Florida State, I really found it because I started to really um, kind of all of all of the math really started to click finally. You know, mm-hmm. people talk about that aha or eureka moment. 
And I, I finally had it where these subjects kind of started tying together all of a sudden. And I felt like, I, I okay, now it all makes sense. Perhaps I was teaching too, right? I was a, I was a teaching assistant, which I taught calculus and the likes. And I think that really helped too, trying to explain to people, not just, you know, do they have to be visual or they aoral? Um, you know, what kind of learner are you? And trying to get different perspectives. So, um, you know, again, and I think that's what helps with this job is, you know, we are narrators at times, right? We're giving mm-hmm. out ideas. We're trying to explain why we're thinking what we're thinking. And, um, you know, if you want to go back to the pet peeves question that you asked earlier, yeah. you know, I hate when people say, well, you're just talking your book. The answer is you're absolutely right talking our book. Why? Because we did a lot of analysis to position that book we the way it is. believe in And the here's book. the data. Right. You're absolutely right. I'm telling you why we uh, we. But it's we a chicken and egg thing. You're not right. talking your book to just go out and sell it. The book exists because of the underlying philosophy and the data behind it. Absolutely right. And take it or leave it. If you like the way we think, then maybe you should invest with us. If you don't, it's fine. Um, you know, other people may. So who are some of your early mentors? Yeah, I mean... Um, from a financial perspective, I had various layers of bosses too over time. Uh, obviously, I admire Jeffrey Gunlock, you know, being there. Uh, I worked for one of his guys named Claude Herb for a while. Um, taught me how to read a lot of financial literature. He's written a lot of stuff. He's written or... a lot. He's won like a Graham Dodd Award. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's run some scrolls over the years too. Good researcher and really taught me to think about every single asset class. And, you know, don't trust the data. Keep grinding through it. Um, good lessons there. Um, and you know, there's the people that I've read. I, like I, I would even say, like a, one guy I've only met once in person, Cliff Asnes, reading materials from mm-hmm. him. Um, and so um, I spend a lot of time on SSRN, you know, checking out what's what's the new stuff out there. And so um, there's a lot of people that I'm forgetting right now, but you know, again, that probably don't even know who the heck I am, uh, but have been big fans of their work and, so, and what they put out. So you reference Cliff Asnes. Tell me some other investors who influenced your approach to investing. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, you got to pull out Rob Arnott in there, too, with mm-hmm. what he's done in kind of valuation. I'm going to go before the factor stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of his stuff on, on valuation, I think, was um, very, very groundbreaking at the time, too. Um, you know, this is pre-smart beta? Is pre-smart beta. So if you go back to the 80s, I mean, he was always talking about multiples and really how those have drive in, uh, sorry, how those drove returns over years. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't think about it. It's all dividend discount model. They don't think about the valuation component. And he's tried to apply that to smart beta factors, too. There's a, I, I, you know, there's the big debate between him and Asnes today about, you know, well, really, if the baskets turn over significantly, is it really a valuation expansion? According to Cliff, the debate is over. Um, I think in the last piece, Cliff said it's over. <laughs> yes. Unless you want more, you know. Um, but um, again, uh, you know, there's been a, um, a, a lot of just kind of academic work, like the... Um, uh, the uh, the studies like from Ibbotson and Siegenfeld uh-huh. and things like that. Um, yeah, I'm just kind of a, a student of history of the financial markets too, because I think uh, there's a lot to be gleaned there. It's not this cutting edge piece that really gives you the most information. It's respecting other periods that have similarities, and no two crises look the same. Uh, so don't expect the last one to hit in the next time. So speaking of history, let's let's talk about some of your favorite books. What do you read for fun, be it finance or non-finance, fiction or non-fiction? Yeah, uh, I think one of the, the best books 
um, early on in my career, I was trying to read all these financial literature, you know, so you start the Michael Lewis's and, sure. you know, like monkey business, all these things. And one of the ones that really got a hold of me was uh, Bernstein, Peter Bernstein's book, Against the Gods. Man, is that an amazing book. It is. And the perspectives, I think, is what is what really struck me within it. And what you're talking about, well, you know, 500 thousands of years ago, people just blame the gods. Right. There's no risk. Right. It's the God's fault. And man, I, I kind of think that today almost. Right. There's some people out there that still say it's not me that did something wrong. It's, you know, let's blame someone else. And the evolution of, of probability theory. And, you know, again, it's funny how it's always gambling that starts um, sure. the conversation in probability theory, but trying to quantify things and understand it. And if you're going to get in the financial business or the investment management business, I mean, this is thinking about risk is is imperative. And again, it leaves you with a cliffhanger at the end. It doesn't ever give you the answer. But I think that's the right answer to risk management is that there is no perfect answer. We, we have all these models. Everybody has all these great data points and they're overfitted. Right. We don't know what the next thing is. Most people aren't predicting the crash when it happens. You're always going to get someone who's been right. randomly finds. Right. It. So against the gods. That's yeah. a great. By the way, I've never read his other one of his other books called The Power of Gold. That's literally sitting next up. In I'll my take queue. it as a recommendation. I liked uh, Bookstaber's uh, book on uh, a demon of our own design. Sure. That too, was a really right? interesting. That, that was a really good one, too. Um, and again, I, I, that was trying to quantify things more. So the parallels here are kind of the risk side, too. The effect of, of derivatives and how completely unanticipated the average investor, uh, unaware the average investor was. Uh, unaware, about. yeah. And so, um, you know, I don't read a lot of fiction. You know, I, I spend more time, as I said, kind of on the SSRN and things. But mm -hmm. those those are kind of two things that really resonated well. Um, you know, the the recent financial books I've read recently. and haven't Give me really one more. We have to have a third book. Oh, me. I didn't know you had to have three. Okay. Well, I've just made that rule up Okay, now. well, um, if we're going to go three, I'll, I'll, I'll go back to, uh, I'll, I'll take Michael Lewis's Moneyball, though. Oh, yeah, God, I love yeah, that. Yeah, but I, I'm a baseball guy, so... You know, from a standpoint, I like the stats. Um, there's just something about it. So uh, it, it's fantastic. And then he, uh, and I actually have never seen the movie. Oh, uh, the movie yeah. is great. Okay. Okay. Strongly recommend it. Okay. Lewis says that he missed the major point of Moneyball, which Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein reminded him was, hey, you're using all this work from Amos Tversky and Danny Kahneman. Uh, which is what led him to the most recent. The Undoing the Project, project yeah. which is really, if you haven't read that. I, I have read that one. I, it didn't really it's strike me as it's much. It's very different. Yeah. I di it didn't resonate as much with me, um, but I do like the Thaler School of Thought, too. You no know, doubt about that. Talking more and more to Professor Schiller, love the behavioral side, too. And did, so. did you speak, but speaking of Lewis, did you ever read The Blind Side? I did. What'd you think of it? I did like it. Um, Except that, you know, the opening scene, you know, didn't resonate well with me as a 49ers fan, um, you know, with uh, LT taking out, uh, yes. you know, the yes. career uh, of Montana. So um, I got through that and uh, I thought it was a good book. Again, not a movie. I never watched the movie, though. So I only have you for a few more minutes. Mm -hmm. Let me jump through my last favorite uh, questions. Tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Well, um, you know the failure stuff's hard to recognize, but um, you know Even we all after the of, fact. Oh no, no. I mean, I think it's the best thing you do to learn. Mm -hmm. um, but um, you know, as an investor too, just um, you know, uh, again, starting probably with the personal accounts too, just um, you know, getting overconfident. You know, as a young young trader, 
you know, you think you know everything. Um, you, you know, I love the options market because you don't have much money, so it's a great right. way to leverage a bet. Um, and you find the undoings of things and um, how other people can corner you in positions. Um, think about, you know, kind of during the financial crisis, people step in and back companies too, and probably shouldn't have been playing around with some of those trades too. But, you know, um, in you know personal life too, you know. Uh, I mean, I've been moderately successful, never was, you know, the top student in, in, in things. And so I, I guess probably one of the biggest failings, too, was when I was in the pure uh, or uh, uh, abstract math or pure mathematics, um, you know, there was some just tough times there where your brain doesn't click. You just don't get it. There's no examples. You're talking about proving these delta epsilon proofs, which I, everybody's already asleep by now. Um, but just, you know, really just getting my teeth kicked in and that stuff and bouncing back, you know. And so, you know, some of it is hard work, you know, uh, as all the sports athletes say, adversity. I don't think in a game's adversity, by the way. I think it's a little overused there. Uh, but, but there is something to be said from from failing and learning from it and picking up and brushing yourself off. And Yeah, and, and you have to do that. And so, again, and then just recognizing that, look, you can't be an expert at everything. Right. There's certain things you can only there's only so much time. There's only so much brain capacity we have, unless maybe you are Cliff, um, you know, uh, that you can absorb all these topics. And so, you know, dedicate yourself to something. And, you know, I, I think I've you know, I've tried sports, some I'm not good at, you know, and never going to try them again. So so speaking of that, what do you do to stay mentally and physically fit outside of the office? What do you what do you do? Well, I've got relax? a cold right now. As well, you're aware, so, outside of, right. of the bubonic plague, right. when when you're not. Typhoid Mary, what do you do to relax out of the office? Yeah, I just, um, you know, I do some reading here and there. Um, you know, I just, um, I live in Santa Monica, just kind of uh, kick back, enjoy kind of the lifestyle out there. So I just check out. Are so, you out surfing or are you no, just enjoying? No, I, I, uh, I don't know how to surf. It's embarrassing. You're right by Meb. You should have met. I know. I, I uh, He did offer. He did offer to I heard go on the at, podcast. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if he wants to see me. I, I'm I, the only the only thing I'm really good at is sinking, so I have been doing some scuba diving lately. All right, um, you know, but the, the thing about the scuba diving is uh, I'm still just getting uh, familiar with the environment. You want to talk about something scary is watching those those things just move around in their own environment so quickly. Which things? Anything? I'll, I'll say even a sea turtle. These big right. sea turtles, probably the most feared I've ever been scuba diving. It's not the little sharks. It's the 100-pound or 150-pound sea turtle just with the turbo jets going by you, buzzing the tower. So, And I feel helpless. So um, at least I, I won't call it a failure. Yes, I was a wuss at the time, and um, I'm better now. you got to put yourself in someone's environment. So, And then um, our last two questions. What sort of advice would you give a millennial who is interested in a career in finance? Yeah, um, you got to be good. It's highly competitive now. Um, there's a lot of consolidation in the, in the industry. Be well read in history, um, you know, especially political events. Um, financial history is extremely important. It's one great thing about you know grad school, and then you learn history of subjects too. I think that's very pertinent. And you know, be open and listen. Um, you know, I, I think there's a lot of good people in the industry around you. Be the sponge. You know, make sure you 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 kind of absorb that. And, you know, read scholarly articles. You may not understand everything, but just press through. And uh, the best thing to do when you find something you like, you find an article you like, look at the footnotes. Education is, is the key here. And, and our final question, what is it that you know about investing today that you wish you knew 20 years ago? That you're never going to know it all. One, um, mathematical models are not perfect. They are tools. They are not the all-be-it-end 
game to everything. Um, and there's going to be things that behave outside of your control. Um, you know, so that can be the security you buy that just tanks. It can be, you know, um, the thesis you have and you realize all your bets are correlated. They're all the same thesis. Um, that's something very important. I see that a lot on these top 10 lists of the year. I know you have your what I did right and wrong kind of stuff. Or is it just Every wrong? Year. Yeah, at the yeah end. do the mea culpa. Right, the mea culpa. And so, um, you know, understand that, you know, you got to have that diversity in there. And that, that's very important, too, because sometimes you think you, you talk yourself in this idea that you have all these trades on, but they're all just being long the dollar, right? When you really break them down or something like that. So uh, make sure that you actually have those, um, you know, different exposure in your portfolio. And, um, you know, again, I think the best thing is, you know, you come out cocky, you studied all this math. Oh, I got the perfect model for this. No way. No such, no such thing. So, Thank you, Jeff, for being so generous with your time. Appreciate it, Barry. Thanks. We have been speaking with Jeff Sherman. He is the Deputy Chief Investment Officer at DoubleLine Capital. Uh, if you like this conversation, be sure to look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, Bloomberg, wherever finer podcasts are sold. And you can see any of the other 165 or so uh, such podcasts that we've done previously. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. Medina Parwana is our producer and audio engineer. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Bloomberg Radio.